0: Hello everyone, this is Supreet Balaji, your host for the podcast show, A Day in the Life Of. As every week, we speak to different people from different professions who has a unique story in their day. Today, we are speaking to one of the most inspiring person in climate education sector, not only in India, but around the world. She is not your average climate educator or an entrepreneur. She is the force of nature dedicated to empowering vulnerable groups in intergovernmental decision making, and she is taking bold climate action steps. With a master's degree in environmental studies from Terry University, she possesses the knowledge and passion to nurture change makers who combat the climate crisis with knowledge based actions. Her journey began at the historic COP21 in 2015, where she was introduced to the UNFCCC process. Since then, she has been a driving force in the climate movement, serving as the global focal point in Yungo during the 2020 and 2021 and playing a pivotal role in elevating youth voices in the global stages as COP. But, 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 her impact doesn't stop there in 2022 she co-founded the youth negotiators academy a groundbreaking initiative aimed at promoting inclusivity in national delegations by training youth to be effective negotiators in the un intergovernmental processes it is none other than ms heeta Lakani. hi heeta welcome to the show
1: Thank you so much, Zipri. that has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for such a lovely introduction.
0: You're welcome. Because this podcast was due, if I'm not wrong, three weeks, three and a half weeks. And Heeta is always <laughs> yeah. on the constant move, traveling. And yeah, thank you so much for taking so much time and joining us. As you might know, this podcast is all about a day in the life. of So the first typical question that I ask to all my guests are, what is your typical day in your life?
1: I think that's the hardest question for me to answer. Frankly, like you said, I'm generally on the move pretty often, whether it's uh, within the country or if it's travel for work abroad. Um, But I think a typical day in the life, like a day that I feel very comfortable working and like sort of, a day that I kind of appreciate gives me some sort of routine. Um, Starts with... Uh, well, usually it starts with a workout in the morning. It's either yoga or a workout that I've been doing for a while. Not very consistent with it because of travel, but I mean, at least that's what I would like. Um, so whenever I'm home, that sort of that's what it looks like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, followed by, you know, sometime in the morning with my family. I have um, where I'm staying now. We have we look after a bunch of cats, so it's usually spent in the morning with like feeding the cats and uh, just being around them. And then s- starting basically getting to work, so I don't necessarily get to work very early in the, in the morning. But it because I also like don't have like an end time in the day, so it goes on until late in the evening. So I don't push myself to like start the moment I wake up. Um, yeah, so that's usually what it looks like. It it's then just I think work throughout the day with like a break for lunch. Um, since I'm working from home and now most of more often than not, my parents are also at home, like more working from home as as in when unless. Um, they have something else so usually like it's lunch with the family um, yeah and that's yeah and probably dinner with the family again so that's usually what it looks like it's a very typical boring day um, it's the kind of uh, routine that i actually like and uh, yeah <laughs> that's what i would enjoy more often than uh, yeah i mean I'd, I'd like to have more of such days
0: Ah, Wonderful. So when you tell a typical boring day, does it mean you involve with, you know, hundreds of meetings every day or taking care of the cats and the cats coming and disturbing you during the meetings and all those things?
1: Yeah, it does. It does happen sometimes. Um, But yeah, it's usually like it's either packed with a bunch of meetings or, you know, like um team calls or just catching up on a bunch of work. Uh, also what I've realized is that The days I have most sort of calls or like online virtual meetings, those are days I also end up with the most amount of work um, if they're nicely, like if they're spaced in a way that gives me intermittent time to work because then I have this, um, how do you say, I have this subtle pressure of like, oh, I don't have too much time to finish anything because I have too many meetings today. So I end up doing a decent amount of work than days when I have like really large chunks of free time because I feel, oh, I have so many hours free, I have enough time to work. And then Mm -hmm. I don't realize (laughs) the few hours I've just gone.
0: Ah, that's nice. That's wonderful. Uh, One thing that, uh, you know, uh, I've seen because uh, if I'm not wrong, I saw you first time in person in El India, 2022. And you were, you know, that was the starting time, you know, for the Youth Negotiators Academy. And many people would be wondering what Youth Negotiators Academy is. Uh, So... If you don't mind, would you like to introduce Youth Negotiators Academy and how you started up, you know, co-founding that particular amazing uh, initiative and what is the current progress of it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So we co-founded the Youth Negotiators Academy um, in 2022 with uh, the four of us coming together. Of course, it was myself, my co-focal point from when I was global focal point for Youngo, so Mary Claire and uh, Veena and Sophie, who we met along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for this came I think mainly from our own experiences after engaging in this space for a while my first time engaging um, as you know already was in 2015 at COP21 and it happened sort of by chance um, of course I mean I did ask around and I sort of wanted to be there but it really wasn't part of sort of a long-term plan that this is what I wanted to do and The more I engaged internationally, the more I worked with other young people. Um, There were a few things. One was, of course, that the world of the UN is just such a complicated world. The uh, negotiations—they have their own language, they have their own protocol, they have multiple meetings going on in parallel at the same time, and it can be really, really overwhelming, especially if you're new to the process and if you're young to be able to engage meaningfully. And when Mary Claire and I were global focal points for YoungU, we championed youth voices in all capacities that we could uh, over the two years that we were working with the UNFCCC secretariat, with the COP presidency, which was the UK government, with other UN agencies, mm-hmm. with other organizations, no matter what shape and form that looked like. And I think one of the things that we really, I mean, it, it it has been there for a while and that kept getting more and more obvious was that, of course, it's one thing to go door-to-door championing youth voices, trying to bring in solutions, trying to talk to um, you know, loads of different delegations and negotiators to mm-hmm. push things within negotiating rooms. But this would have been probably slightly easier if we had a young person who could champion this themselves as part of the delegation. So it wasn't just an outsider. Um, mm-hmm. So then, this, these demands, these inclusions, or these perspectives could already be already be brought in a lot before the negotiations, a lot before the COP. So when countries set their positions, this could already already be part of the inclusions. Um, So it wasn't something that they had to think about last minute and then consider new demands. Um, And one of the reasons why this wasn't happening is, of course, because, like I mentioned, the world of the UN is so complicated. It is very hard, especially for a young person who doesn't have so many years of experience engaging Mm -hmm. within this space to know how to do this meaningfully, to how do you be part of it and actually contribute rather than just, you know, trying to um, observe Uh, So that's what we did. We said, okay, let's train young people to build their capacity, to be able to do this. Um, Our capacity was also built over years through multiple different people, programs, you know, different kinds of things. And the issues that we faced were, of course, community. Uh, This was Mm -hmm. the biggest thing, especially for me. The more I engaged at COPS, um, the more comfortable I got only when I felt like I had a set of friends, I knew people who were around me. And I didn't feel like I was lost and alone and vulnerable in this complicated mass of the UN. Um, So that's how we started and that's how we basically conceptualized the program. And that's what we've done over the last year and a half and now soon going to be two years uh, where we this year are now working with over 50 countries and Mm -hmm. uh, training over 100 plus negotiators to be at COP28. Mm-hmm. So that's the aim. We're really working with countries to bring young people in the delegations, uh, build their capacity to be able to support the national delegations, so that they mm-hmm. can include, um, you know, think about different perspectives, include different positions, and uh, different sort of outcomes. Hopefully, affect the outcomes in a different may- way as they're brought in, build capacity, and you know, helping the delegations achieve what they're going to the UN
0: for. Wow, that sounds so inspiring! Like. The path that you faced, you wanted to make sure that everybody else, no, hasn't has to go through that rough path. Maybe they can have a very easy mentor. They can get everything to their, you know, uh, easy access so that they can be the part of change. That's really inspiring because uh, when you talk about going towards climate negotiations, I think I was there for... uh, you know how Elcoi in Elcoi we do the youth statement. It was actually too technical to me, even in Elcoi. But if you talk about UN, F and cops, I guess it would be more, more you no, know, more technical and more detailed, and you no, know, uh, more yeah. political. If I'm not wrong, if if that is the yeah. right word.
1: Yeah, it it is. Uh, I mean. Well, it is a political space, right? When you have 197 countries, it is a political space. There is geopolitics involved. um, And the, you can see a lot of this sometimes just unfold, you know, even on a day-by-day basis. So it, it is definitely not the easiest space to work at. Hmm,
0: that's nice to hear. So I see that you got a master's in environmental science and theory, but bachelor's, what was your bachelor's and how did your bachelor's, whatever you did in bachelor's and how did it turn towards this particular path of environmental science and environmental education and climate action? So uh, what was that particular incident that made this differ in this path?
1: Well, I think, uh, I think it was all through my childhood. And I've said this a few times, but I, I mean, there was a time when I was coming home from school and I live in Bombay um, and we used to pass by Marine Drive. And this was where the... Beautification project. This was probably when I was around, maybe around thirteen. Um, was going on. So in order to do this beautification project, basically to see the marine dive that you see today, to see the promenade, um, that they built. Uh, that was that they, it was lined by coconut trees even on the side of the sea, and um, they basically were transplanting or at least uprooting these trees. And I think they said they transplanted them, but I I haven't. I was too young and I haven't checked, so I'm not entirely sure. But they basically said Mm. they were transporting these trees um, to widen the promenade and for multiple different reasons as well. So there was this one afternoon when as the work was going on, there was this huge coconut tree or this coconut palm tree that was lying horizontal on a trailer and its roots were out. And, you know, you could you could see the whole tree except for it being vertical. It was horizontal on this long trailer. Mm. And that uh, entirely shook me. I could not for the life of me understand how someone could do a beautification project by taking the natural beauty out of of the space. And I was almost inconsolable when I went home and I felt very, very helpless. And I think that was around the time when someone must have jokingly said, oh, if you know you care so much, you should be an environmentalist. And I was like, hmm. So that stayed with me. And every time then when someone asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think I told them I want to be an environmentalist without even fully understanding uh, what that meant. Of course, when I then had to decide what to study after after school, I looked at of course different environmental courses. I also applied to different universities. Uh, but then I kept questioning because people said, "Oh, maybe this is just a passion. You know, this is not something that maybe this is a hobby. Like you can always mm. do this later on." Mm. So eventually, I did. Uh, of course, I didn't do a bachelor's in environment. I did a bachelor's in life sciences, a BSc in life mm. sciences. Um, so I studied a lot of biology. There was the um, that was the other thing that I really enjoyed. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor and I didn't want to be an engineer, <laughs> but I wanted to do science. So then I picked the other thing that was sort of left for me. Um, and yeah, that's that's how it went. I chose, uh, thankfully I chose the university, because by the end of the third year, we had to pick an applied component. And St. Xavier's College, where I studied, was offering an applied component in environmental studies. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, this thing gives me an opening and sort of an avenue in case it's still, this is still of interest by the end of three years. And of course, I think by the end of three years, I knew that it's like, I didn't want to get into biological sciences and I still wanted to do the environment. So that's how I then eventually did my master's.
0: That sounds like a very inspiring story because many people... For example, come to engineering or medical on the 12th, mostly engineering, because after you come to engineering, you're like, okay, I can do this, I can do that, I can do that. So it's just like, I thought it's going to be like engineering, but I guess you were so much from the 13, 14 year old, you bought into that mindset that you want to become an environmentalist and then you're doing this. So I think it's a huge success for you, I guess, if I'm not wrong.
1: (laughs) yeah i didn't I didn't look at it that way i mean it was just i mean it was things just happened i think by chance as well i well or maybe not by chance but i even though I didn't know what I wanted to do basically after i uh, finished school, I definitely knew that i didn't i didn't want to be a doctor and I didn't want to study engineering because I could not like numbers in me were really not good friends so I was like i can't i genuinely was just a fear of numbers that I was just like i can't do this for four years um and I enjoyed biology. I thoroughly enjoyed biology, and we we studied all kinds of things over three years. Right from uh, biochemistry to neurobiology to genetics mm. to um, I don't know. We we studied a, a range of subjects, and I think that really like the variety sort of um interested me because it didn't narrow me down into one thing even over three years. Mm. Um, it still kept a lot of options open for me uh, based on the subjects that we had, and I. Over the first two years, of course, I also studied chemistry. I studied geology. Um, so we—I had like I had the sort of I could pick and choose in what direction I'd like to go. In case um, sort of I felt like biology wasn't for me, so that that sort of helped as well.
0: That's nice. That's wonderful. So uh, going on to the next question, I think this is like uh, everybody goes through this because no matter what subject or what course or what profession you are in there's always going to be a challenge there's always going to be a setback so what challenges do you face in your daily routine as a you know co-founder of youth negotiators academy and uh, your climact initiative and uh, and how do you overcome them
1: uh, well i think challenges look very different also on i mean in situation to situation for example, with the youth negotiators, when we started off, um, it was four young women who had this crazy idea, oh, we'll work with countries and train young negotiators. Um, I mean, of course, a couple of us had been to a few cops and we we sort of knew our way around the space, more or less. But at the end of the day, we still didn't have any institutional backing. It was still four people who said, well, let's approach countries and tell them we can train your negotiators. So I think just... Um, I think it was a little bit of naivety like we were definitely naive when we started off mm. and uh, sometimes I think that worked in our favor because people saw that we really wanted to do like we we wanted, we were really passionate about it. Um, we didn't take no for an answer so we honestly like the, we didn't let anything go like a lot of people told us this is a little crazy this is impossible. Um, you need to work with so-and-so organization. We had UN institutes who actually told us, you know, if you let us do this, we'll contract you. Um, let this be our program. And we were just like, I'm sorry, this is our brainchild. And this is what we want to do. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But we're going to give it a shot. So I think initially it was more the zeal and the passion to like really, for us also just try it out and see whether we could build a prototype of something that we kept dreaming of. And of course, then was, you know, really implement, implementing it. Um, in the last year, as we did our pilot, we then realized that we had around 50 young negotiators that we had promised to fund and bring to COP. And through the timescale of conceptualizing the program in January, launching it officially in April, starting a training in July, we only got to fundraising by August or September properly. Mm-hmm. So building training, you know, conceptualizing the program, putting together modules, bringing in trainers... All of it took all our time at the start of the year. So by the time we actually got time for fundraising, it was only a couple of months before COP and we needed to raise enough money to bring over 50 young negotiators from different parts of the world, from 27 countries or 26 countries, um, to actually bring them to Egypt. And I think that um, finance, of course, was quite a bit of a challenge. I think all of us in the first year did everything that we could, not just in terms of fundraising, but everything even in the program, right? we didn't really define saying, this is my role and this is yours. And, you know, we're not going to sort of overlap. Like if somebody wrote an email, you would at one point get a response from me. And maybe two days later, when they wrote back, get a response from Mary Claire or from somebody else in the team. So we just literally tag teamed and picked up tasks as in when we saw it without really thinking about it. Um, Mm. So that I think really, really worked, like, which is what helped us overcome crazy challenges. I mean to get 26 countries to believe in us and to actually yeah. nominate young people. Um that I think was a huge task in itself. And I didn't don't think we realized or we didn't give it enough time to sit and think of how large it was. And like we basically didn't give it time for us to for it to overwhelm us. So I think that really worked because we just kept working like day and night, seven days a week, um, across time zones because somebody would reply when one person was asleep and then another one would wake up and pick it up. And I think that probably really helped. Like we just did not think of the scale at all until we were at COP and people were in front of us and we were like, wow, we can't believe we've actually gotten these people in fashion blood together in one place. Um, so I think that was one thing. And I think for Climact also, because it's they both sort of evolved around the same time. So youth negotiators took so much of my time and energy that I've been able to, of course, give a much less... Uh, amount of time to climate, but it is also I think growing quite organically and quite beautifully as well we've done pilot projects with communities that i would never thought of working with in the past
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: you know raised small amounts of money very small amounts of money but having people trust us and sort of raise that amount of money to, to give it to a very young organization um, to do work in parts of the country where not many people have probably otherwise worked up, out um, to, to sort of build curriculum and sort of build programs and give us the sort of flexibility. And I think that is really helping. Um, of course, there are multiple challenges, whether it's, you know, just navigating sort of legal system or how, how do you say the sort of corporate legal world within the country to raising funds to building a team, but even having a team that's working entirely voluntary. I think it's just for having people to um, sort of believe in the program, to believe in the idea that I had and help me build it up with me. And I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: that has, like these are little things that would I I, w- I would never be able to work without um, the people that I'm working with. So I think that has really, really helped.
0: Wow, that sounds like an interesting journey and, you know, path where you guys are forced. Because if I'm not wrong, once I read an article, uh, which you sent in a group, I guess, if I'm not wrong, talking about, how the four mothers of climate change started new initiatives, and if I'm not wrong, you guys are still known as that. So congratulations okay. on your amazing journey, because uh, everybody can actually see that. Uh, if you're, if I'm not wrong, you have an own Instagram page where you share your you no know, latest uh, updates about Youth Negotiators Academy. So guys, don't forget to go over there. In instagram and find out climate youth negotiators academy and find out more about what their programs are and if you'd like to support them, I guess they'll be more than happy to. uh, Get some support on all these amazing works that they're doing yeah so as you talk about challenges. Uh, there are some specific rituals, some specific you know day-to-day programs that you guys do or you do in person, so that in the sense, for example, or habits that you might have, so that you can you know go ahead of these challenges and you know be positive and be motivated. So, what are these specific rituals or habits that you follow to kickstart your day and you know maintain productivity?
1: Yeah, I think um, a couple of small things. I mean, it's also been sort of a learned. With over time, like just to see what really works best for me. And like I said, I think I usually start the day with some sort of workout. Um, and exercise it really helps, it helps freshen the mind. It also helps me uh, feel like I've done something and sort of already helps, like feel like I've achieved something. So, like, sort of ticking off a box without really having to do much. Uh, so, that on most days, of course, that works really well. This is completely haywire when I'm traveling because then I absolutely don't have a, a fixed routine. But like, this is usually what works for me and um of late it's also just been recognizing that um, work is still a part of my life and i have a whole life outside so trying to also have uh, you know take breaks and uh have sort of evenings where, or at least some parts of the day or like weekends where i'm really not working or not doing anything because for the longest time i think without even thinking just because i enjoyed doing what i was doing i worked uh, 24 hours a day seven days a week without I mean without it being a burden you know it just I I liked it and I thoroughly enjoyed it so I just continued mm-hmm. doing it day after day until very recently when I was just like okay I think this is taking a toll on my mental health and I do need to pause take breaks um and also just enrich myself so that's a mix of that I absolutely love spending time in nature or like at least just being out and you know having some green around me so usually like that's what I would like is just to get some fresh air be outside um yeah I mean basically being with the natural world like helps me connect helps me ground and also just sort of it it relaxes you so that really works for me as well
0: oh, that's nice to hear because many people uh you know they when they start their day with one particular ritual I think their day goes through like you know a happy day or a successful one so just like how you have a workout session or a yoga session and then the whole day works out to be an you know, amazing success so that's nice to hear uh the next thing is i want to go back a little back towards your global focal point as youngo so your role as the global focal point for youngo was during 2020 to 2021 uh it involved you know uh elevating the youth voices on the global stage where uh, Youngo is very huge and it's been growing in the past few years. And your role in the Youngo in 2020 to, 2020 to 2021 was very immense and you could see a uh, key achievements like even COP26, uh, if I'm not wrong. COP26 was during your, uh, your, uh, during, during your focal point time. What are some of the key achievements and challenges during this period as global focal point for Global South in Yango?
1: I don't know where to get started. Um, when I first got involved in Yango, when I first heard about Yango and sort of involved in the conference of Youth co 11 in 2015 in Paris and was very, mm-hmm. very intimidated. Um, I remember the next year when I went to a Yango meeting at COP22 I remember talking to somebody from Yango at that point, uh, one of the former members now, and asking her what actually happened after the whole meeting took place. And she was trying to explain. And I felt when I was in the room, you know, it just felt like a world of its own. There were mm-hmm. hand signs, people we were communicating, and there was someone facilitating the meeting. There was someone walking around and sort of, uh, you know, helping pass the mic. And someone knew exactly what was going on. And I felt like a fish out of water um and the girl she was really sweet she actually like you know explained what happened i think she also had to run so she just went through it very quickly and by the end of it i just said yes because um i still absolutely had not understood anything oh my god i was like i you know if i ask her one more time i'm just going to look like an idiot so i just didn't say anything um but i think the the beautiful thing that really worked for me was community i i mentioned this a little bit And that COP in 2016, I went with a youth delegation and that really helped because it at least made me feel like I wasn't the only one who was lost, you know, I wasn't the only one who didn't know what was going on. Um, Mm. And it gave me a safe space to like ask questions or even to say like, today has made absolutely no sense to me. So after I finished, I mean, basically, when I came back home from COP, I was on the younger mailing list already. And. They had a call for different working groups and they were sort of restructuring. And that's when I got more and more involved. I applied to join a few working groups. And that really helped because it helped me start like bottom up. Um, it helped me understand a few things uh, on how I can meaningfully engage. It helped me do things that I sort of had areas of interest in um, because I could pick and choose what areas of what working groups I worked in, things mm-hmm. like this. And I think over the years, especially as I became younger, focal point eventually a few years later, something that would, I would never have even dreamed of when I was talking at the very last um, youth in 2016, asking what was going on. Um, I think one of the most rewarding things, of course, has been the scope to engage with so many different young people from so many parts mm. of the world, just learning about different cultures, learning about different ways of working, trying to create a space of openness you know trying to create a space where um, people actually respect each other or have certain work ethics work cultures uh, given the complexity of the global uh, you know picture of of yango and i think that has definitely been very very rewarding and then of course as focal point because you are the first point of contact you end up speaking with so many different people whether it's you know un agencies or whether it is um, You know, whether it is governments or whether it is even NGOs or even other young people, if anybody was lost or confused and wanted to know what to do, we ended up getting emails from them. So I think especially during COP and like before COP, the time before COP and the lead up to COP, we and not exaggerating, we got anywhere between 100 to 150 emails every single day uh, from all kinds of people, from all kinds of things. And it was very overwhelming. It was a lot, so I think it came with its own challenges. Uh, Being global focal point, of course, was an entirely volunteer position, and we did that full time. Like I said, we did this um, twenty-four (laughs) hours a day, um, every single day of the week. Like weekends didn't count. Nothing, nothing mattered to us because there was Mm -hmm. always something. So I think like that came. Like the beauty of it also came with its fair share of challenges. Challenges. But I think one thing that I really have to acknowledge is that my co-focal point of my Claire and I, we went from just happening to know each other to really, really becoming friends over the two years with so much virtual work, of course, through the pandemic. That was our only mode of contact. And eventually, because you work with someone so often, um, conversations then started to build up beyond just work. We started talking about our day. We then started talking about what, our, what was happening in our lives and we became really close friends by the end of 2 years so when we actually met in 2021 after the like for the first time um well not for the first time we'd met met previously but for the first time as vocal points together it really felt like um, meeting another basically it felt like meeting you know one of my closest friends it, me, it felt like meeting an, a half of myself that i hadn't met for half a, for, for 2 years and I definitely think that all the madness of all the sort of um, the pressures the the continuous long nights, uh, no sleep, no weekends would not have been possible if we did not have the kind of relationship that we eventually turned out to build. So I I think a big part of it definitely goes to, goes to her and sort of how our friendship de- then evolved, which also then, of course, led us to co-founding the Youth Negotiators Academy um, after that but i think in other than that i think challenges were plenty were, were plenty you know right from the pressures of organizing of working with so many different people mm-hmm. to um, you know short time scales to sometimes it's also really been a thankless job because people don't really understand what goes on behind the scenes and they only end up seeing the final product and the final product is somewhere, sometimes not always the best product because a lot of it is not always in our control. So it was very, very thankless. Um, we didn't get any, oh, well, I wouldn't say any, but we didn't basically get a lot of appreciation from the community sometimes um, on different topics because it's it really, certain things are just not visible. So yeah. I think, and that's that's part of also being, working with such a large community because it also makes, it is a beauty, but it's also, a, a, it's, it's a bane in, in itself. So... There were different things to it. Um, yeah, but it's it's definitely, it's been a memory that I cherish and it's really been a shaping, uh, it's been definitely, it's been an experience that has shaped my life in, in many ways.
0: Wow, that's very, very inspiring because I don't know how many times I'm going to say inspiring in this particular <laughs> session, but truly it's very inspiring to hear because uh, I've been very interested in climate action, but I was I was I know I really did not get a part towards how to go ahead with. And I think many people can relate to it. But now, after the Youth Negotiators Academy and all the different initiatives that are happening, maybe climate initiatives, maybe Elcoi, Youngo, a lot of programs that are happening, many people can come forward and you know they can learn a lot and they can be a part of this amazing global change towards bring making this world a better place. So I have this thought that uh, policy is one way where you can contribute towards climate change or climate action. And there are some other ways also that anybody can, you know, from their normal lifestyles, maybe even though they're not directly related, related to climate change or environmental studies, I think they can have some small changes in their lives so that they can support the climate action. So what are some of the, you know, um uh, uh, contributions that young people or anybody can do or individuals and local communities can do for a meaningful impact for the fight of climate action and flight against climate change?
1: Yeah, I think, like you said, like there's literally everything um, outside of policy that that can still help in the big fight, right? Climate change is something that is affecting all sectors of life and literally all populations around the world soon now. Um, so there is so much that we can do because it is affecting our lives in countless ways so right from sort of understanding I think the very simple thing starting at a very individual level because that is the first thing in our sphere of control is what Mm -hmm. we're doing individually and um, starting with individual action I think just very simply understanding what our needs are and then understanding what we really want and I think if we can try and identify and distinguish between I need something and hence I'm going to get it versus I want something and hence I'm going to get it. Makes a very huge difference. Our um, entire community and the world is such as now it has become so consumeristic that of course it comes from a capitalistic economy, from a capitalistic way of working. Um, But it's, it is entirely consumeristic every single thing that we do sometimes even for example if you're just scrolling social media there are so many different prompts so many different ads there are different people who are constantly trying to tell you this product is good for you or this looks good for you Hmm. Um, and they're actually like it's it's tailored to what your likes are what your dislikes are they have so many algorithms to you know actually find the right things for you that it's very hard to identify um, and to really stop yourself from clicking on that link to like see what what more lies there So there's a lot that we can do just if we can try and understand what we really need to get um, Mm -hmm. versus what we want. And then, of course, there are lots of different things. There are people who um, have been working, you know, to try and get, I wouldn't really say zero waste, but to a low waste lifestyle. So trying to, you know, compost, um, you know, your own waste in the house or at least your kitchen waste to looking at how much packaging is coming in. Can you find alternative, you know, ways of consuming things? Like, for example, even just kitchen stuff, like can you look at alternative ways? Can you um, carry your own water bottle, carry your own, you know, basic cutlery around? So a bunch of things that you can do right from day-to-day activities. And then, of course, you've been, ever since kids in school, like you've been taught about, you know, turn off the tap or turn off lights or like uh-huh. use public, and watch or short, uh, and walk, walk short distances and all kinds of things. Um, so if we really try and implement all of that, I'm sure it makes, I mean, it is going to make a, a difference to some extent. But individual action is honestly not the only solution to climate change. So we have to go beyond um, and we have to try and understand what is it that is affecting, what, what can I start by? And then, of course, um, eventually over time, I'm sure things can change and it can build up so trying to understand what we can do going from even in your household so it's gone beyond the individual to the few three four five people that live in your house to then maybe to the housing complex or the building or the society that you live in to then building up from there so it can start with as simple you know it can start with smaller things like that mm-hmm. to probably you know getting more in terms of understanding what system changes are required, trying to advocate for different changes, maybe trying to come up. So sometimes it's very easy to say, oh, this is wrong and this is not working and this needs to change. But can we think of solutions? Can we think of alternatives? So if, um, let's say, you know, it's really bad to have everything packaged in plastic, like right from the packet of chips to your chocolates to your grains to everything um but can we find alternatives for something like this can we maybe write to manufacturers can we find different kinds of um outlets who are selling things slightly differently where you can carry your own box um, you know mm. for example and i think especially in a country like india the best thing would be to talk to parents talk to grandparents if they're still around and really ask them what did they do when they were growing up what did it look like for them right as a community as a society we were never wasteful one-time right. use was not part of our language at all. It wasn't part of our day-to-day living. So just right. trying to see how did things change and can we go back a little bit? Um, hmm. And going back is probably not necessarily, it It doesn't mean that you're not making progress. And I think it's really trying to understand what our roots are, what our livelihoods were, our connection with nature, our connection with land was innately present in our lives um, and in our right. communities, which we have... At least our generation, the urban generation, is entirely lost. We don't know ah. where our food is coming from. We don't have a day-to-day connect with nature. Correct. And this includes me as well. You know, I'm I'm not, it's not like I have my own um, you know, farm where I'm constantly getting all my food from. So this right from what we're eating in the day to what is happening, you know, throughout until the end of the day, we've lost our connect with the natural environment. And yet our life entirely depends on it. We wouldn't have our morning cup of chai or our breakfast if we didn't have the natural world. So I think just going back to basics a little bit, sometimes help us see things in a different perspective as well.
0: Wow, very true. Because I thought we might always need to find the alternative, but your idea of going back to our roots, talking with our parents and grandparents, or understanding how it was there before, and what was the change, and how we can come back. Wow, that's a very good idea. I think many people will actually go back now, talk to their grandparents, talk to their parents and understand, you know, because uh, climate change is really scary. I think living in Mumbai might be, you no, know, you can get it to a daily day effect, but uh, many people living in metropolitan cities and, you know, small countries like Maldives or other countries who are in the verge of, you know, being sunken under with the climate change, it is very scary. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think are some of the key skills or qualities you believe that are essential for the success in this field?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, kindness. Um, We have to be kind, not just to each other, but first I think mm-hmm. we need to be kind to ourselves because it is such a space that it is constantly demanding something, right? Um. I wouldn't say it's selfless because I think at some point we're all doing this with certain motives. No matter what it is, it's different for everybody. It doesn't have to be a monetary motive, right? Hmm. Um, So I wouldn't say this is like the most selfless thing. I've had so many people tell me, oh, it's so nice that you're sacrificing your life for this. I don't think I'm sacrificing my life. I have my own personal reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing. I innately care about my future and about um, futures of generations to come. And I innately care about having a planet where I can live without having to worry about What's going to happen if there's not enough rainfall, or you know how to deal with a with a heat wave? And I think it's very, it's very personal to me as well. So I think the first thing is kindness. Um, really, trying, and then this I've learned sometimes the hard way is if you're not kind to yourself, you're not going to be able to do this. You're going to burn out. You're going to be exhausted, and you're never going to be able to do what you're doing if you are exhausted and you are not uh, feeling like you know, you you can give. So I think just understanding that is very important. And then, of course, um, we're all doing our own thing, right? Everybody has um, their own lives beyond what they're doing here. So I think if we're kind to ourselves, we also need to be kind to everybody else because everybody's fighting their own battles, most of which which we have no idea about. So really giving people room for error, giving people space to learn in their own ways and then on their own time without having to have a certain way of doing things or having a deadline and saying you know if you've not achieved something by the age of 25 or if you've not spoken at so many events or if you've not attended I don't know how many different things or had five media interviews you haven't done anything and I think none of that actually really matters it's really what you're doing every day whether or not somebody is seeing it is actually going to make the change. No of how many media interviews or how many times you've spoken here or there, if you're actually not doing anything much outside of those speaking engagements, it's probably not, I mean, you're probably a really inspiring speaker, no doubt, but like you still have to do something. So really being kind and sort of helping people find their own space and, you know, doing what they're good at. Some people are really good at speaking. Some people are really good at working behind the scenes. Um, so finding your own niche and finding what works for you And I think another thing that you really need um, to keep going is a passion. Because without that, you're not going to be able to do this in the long run. For the short term, probably. But we are in a marathon. We're not in a sprint. So if you want to live in a like if you want to work through a marathon, you have to be able to be resilient and you have to have some sort of passion to push you, even on days where you feel like not everything's working. So... I think those are the two very core things, and then of course, then of course, there's expertise, there's technical knowledge, all of that. But I think all of that comes secondary to very core emotions of creating a space which lets you thrive, but also lets other people thrive with you, because this is a fight where we're all in together, and it's not really not a personal fight at this point.
0: Wow, the KP initiatives, the kindness and passion. Of anybody. That's so inspiring, truly wonderful to hear that. Uh, the other part is you talked about. Uh, how people are passionate about, you know, being in part of this particular community or maybe, for example, even though you have not given so much, you know, being in media interviews or doing that, doing extra activities, how passionate you are and how kind you are towards yourself and others. So what are some of the, you know, key moments in your life that you feel like these were the changing parts?
1: Uh, I think it's been a bunch of things. And now I think... I think just thinking back, of course, the whole journey through Yango, the few years that I was part of it and very actively involved, uh, gave me so much exposure, not just to, of course, learning the thematics and trying to understand the UN, um, but it just gave me so much exposure to understanding people, understanding cultures, trying to work across so many different types of people, different types of cultures. And it is a very, very, um, how do you say, it It is a very demanding space. um, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes some of the most brilliant minds are the ones that are present in Yango. But it also means that there are so many different clashes, like so many different trains of thought, so many different ways of working. <laughs> so, of course, beyond everything that I learned about the UN and the negotiations, Yango really taught me how to work with people. Like it taught me real life skills. It taught me real life, uh, like it gave me real life examples of how to identify red flags, Within people, how to identify different ways of working, how to work across such a cross cultural community. So, I think that has been one of the shaping uh, points over the years. And then, I think, of course, um, through building the Youth Negotiators Academy, it really taught me teamwork. Um, It taught me trust. And Mm -hmm. I think it really taught me not giving up. Really, really like the word saying never saying never. was actually an attitude within the team. And it really wasn't something that we said, but like it, it was what we did every single day. And the kind of camaraderie, the kind of friendship that evolved through that, the support system, the community that we built, not just as a team, but we, the community that then evolved as the young negotiators. And yeah. that community is thriving even today, the negotiators that were part of the first cohort, really, you know, are, um, they just, they go beyond the cohort. They are a family. Um, and I use the word family very cautiously. They def- they, they truly are part of the P family, but they're a family of their own as well. And I think that would not have happened um, if it hadn't been sort of culture within the team. And, you know, that sort of came just by the passion of really wanting to make this and create a prototype that we felt that could actually create change. Oh,
0: that's nice to hear. That's very motivating. uh okay so moving on uh, i would like to ask some you know kind of uh, weird questions or maybe something more towards a funny interactive part here so towards climate change uh, if you were a superhero you know fighting climate change and you now working towards climate action so what would your superpower be and what does your costume look like? You know, all these Iron Man suits and all these things. So what does your superpower be and what does your costume look like?
1: Oh my God. I have never thought about this. Um, (laughs) Well, I think the one superpower that I would really like. Well, actually, no, I want two superpowers. One of them would really, really like to be a little fly on the wall. Like I really sometimes want to know why people make certain decisions and what really goes on behind the rules sometimes mm-hmm. you don't really get the full picture i would love to be a fly on the wall in so many meetings and just listen in on what's happening um i would really 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 like that if i <laughs> had the <a> choice <laughs> um and i think another one would i think another one would probably just be able to have more hours in the day or like to be able to have, to, to be able to need less sleep. and no more. <laughs> like if I could function of three hours of sleep every night, I would absolutely love to have more time in the day. Uh, that's why my constant struggle that I'm constantly feel like I don't have enough time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if I could get more hours in a day, no matter how that worked out, like I would definitely want that to have, to have that superpower as well. Um uh- i haven't really thought about a costume i think it would probably it would definitely be um it would definitely be a dress like easily like a very comfy long dress where i could yeah i think it would like a costume would definitely be a dress like a long mm-hmm. dress um and possibly like I don't know. Actually, I haven't given it that much thought. I think a cape would also be cool with it. A cape would definitely be
0: cool. A cape (laughs) with a long dress.
1: Yeah.
0: That sounds like a, you know, um, know, climate action, you know, hero. That's that's good. What would the name be? What would your name be for that? What would the name of the superhero be?
1: This gets even more complicated now. Um... (laughs) I think we have to come back to this. I need some time to think about <laughs> my name.
0: Okay, let us come back to this question later <laughs> on. But next one, let me give you a situation. It's like if you could have a you know dinner party, huge dinner party where you could host multiple people and you could bring in three people from the history, three historical figures, living or deceased, Uh, to discuss about climate change and climate action, who would those be and why those people?
1: Well, but I think the first one would definitely be um, my mentor, Dr. R. K. Pachauri, who's no more. I would, there's so much, and I feel like some, um I feel I definitely feel like there are so many conversations that I want to have with him, like so many questions um mm-hmm. and his experiences. So I think that would definitely be the first one that I would that I would have. Um, I think another one would be um, Kofi Annan, the former secretary General of the u n.
0: Uh, okay. Uh-huh. I like
1: so many different things about him. I've um, of course never had the chance to interact with him, and I would definitely I think would cherish to be able to meet him once and to just to just hear about his experiences, uh-huh. to just hear you know, what he knows and like, what you know, the immense amount of knowledge and experience that he's had with so many, like, with his work over so many years. Um. Uh, and for the third one, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, um. As a child, you know, I really, really... Well, I had two things that I wanted to be when I grew up. I either wanted to be an environmentalist or I wanted to be an astronaut. Wow. Mm. <laughs> I think the reason I wanted to be an astronaut was because of Kalpana Chawla. So I think I, I would definitely want to be able to meet her and just talk to her, ask her what the world looked like um, from space and... Yeah, I think like that would be a conversation or like an interaction that I would really, really cherish.
0: Wow, that's so cool. I guess uh, many people know to me also because science was very fascinating to me and I wanted to grow up to become an astronaut, but I'm nowhere towards becoming an astronaut (laughs) now. But yeah, very truly Kalpana Chawla is a very huge inspiration to many people in the world. And yeah. I was really wonderful to hear the three historic people that you would want to talk about climate change and this amazing dinner that you host. Okay, so moving on to this last crazy question. So let's make it more, you know, uh, if you had to create a climate-themed cocktail or a mocktail, what would you name it? And what ingredients would it be? <laughs>
1: oh, um <laughs> I would definitely name it damaka. That's a name. That damaka. Oh, wow, that's good. That's
0: good. That's very innovative. Wow,
1: Dhamaka. I would definitely name it Dhamaka. Um, I think I would talk to a few mixologists to understand what I could create yeah. that tastes nice, but also like really, you know, gives you a little kick the moment you drink it. <laughs> the moment your mouth touches the glass, like you have to feel like, okay, this is not this is, there's something in this. Um so yeah, I'm not entirely sure what I would add to it. It would definitely have some amount of fizz. It would it would be sweet, um, mm-hmm. but not entirely sweet. Like it would be maybe sweet, salty, tangy, like a mix of a few different things.
0: Um,
1: um there's kokam sharpat which is very common in Maharashtra, which is used like in some like so it's sweet, it's tangy, um. So it would be it's a burst of flavors. So I definitely think like the cocktail would be a burst of flavors, um. Yeah, um. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's it for now.
0: So as soon as the people drink and are like, "Oh my God, I need to work on climate change now." Come on, let's go ahead. So yeah,
1: <laughs> that's another magic potion to add to it.
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully we can get Dumbledore back to add some portions over there. <laughs> okay so going back going back to the you know costume ah, i think not the costume what was it
1: the name uh, of the
0: character ah yeah the name of the superhero yes
1: um I think the name of the superhero would probably, well, I don't know if it's a name, but it would probably be something along the lines of, um, I think something along the lines of a silent worker, because that's usually Uh how I I, I mean, I do have a lot of media interviews and stuff like this, but actually they've just, like, it's literally all come to me. I've never gone out and approached the media for any sort of publicity or any sort of interview. Um, and it doesn't really matter to me whether or not it, it happens or it doesn't. i so it would something it would definitely be around the lines of a silent worker
0: That's nice to hear. So thank you so much, Heeta, for this you no know, small, stupid question round. Uh, I still have two more questions left for you. Really sorry for making this a little longer conversations. so the the first question there would be. Uh, Climate change is a little bit about, you know, daunting and complex issues where a lot of things happens, a lot of, setbacks when you're working on policies. So what advice do you have for young people and others who want to get involved in this climate action, but may not know where to start or how to do it or where to begin from? What is your advice?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing is, get started right at home, do whatever you can in your sphere of influence to Mm -hmm. make change. Um, And then of course, uh, you know, look for organizations, look for networks or people who you feel are doing something in an area where you're passionate about, let's say, be it water or be it waste or be it general like climate advocacy um, or policy or whatever else that might be, right? So -hmm. I think then look for organizations, reach out to people. And I think the one thing that I'd say is... um, don't be afraid of asking. Um, I was a very intimidated person, a very intimidated child when I started off, even at the first conference back in 2015. And sometimes I wish that maybe if I you know, wasn't as intimidated and wasn't as shy, um, things could have turned out differently even at the start of it. Um, it is not a repent, like it's 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 been a journey. And I think I was a very different person in 2015 versus what I am today. I would never be able to talk um, the way I speak today and interact and sort of do the things that I'm doing. So it's definitely been a great mm. journey. And I think the one advice is definitely do not be afraid to ask. Um, it may feel silly or stupid, or, you know, it may feel like you, um, like people think that you don't know anything. I think it's absolutely fine. Uh, not everyone knows everything. Nobody knows everything. Sure, We're all... Maybe we know a little bit in one aspect, but there's a lot to learn in another aspect. So I'm sure there are things that you can give as well as things that you can learn. So don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Ask, take the first step and you never know where that will go, right? You never know what direction life might take you in. So I think those are the two things that I'd like to say.
0: Um, That's nice to hear because many people really don't know where to start. So the last question is looking ahead, what are your hopes and aspirations of the you know, future of the climate action and climate change, both on the local, regional, and the global scale and within the community where you work with
1: well, them? Um, well, I think first, looking at my hopes and aspirations, I think I'll start off with the two initiatives that I basically work on right now. And with the climate initiative, we focus on climate education, intersectional and holistic climate education. I am trying to build an education curriculum that I wish I had as a child. Um, bring information, share knowledge, um, different education pedagogies, which I wish could be taught uh, you know, to really make environment and climate a lot more actionable, a lot more understandable. So I think my hopes and aspirations are really to be able to scale up, to build um, and to be able to reach communities that act- actually need this. So to be able to reach the most vulnerable communities across such a diverse landscape in India um, and to be able to give back uh, whatever I've been able to learn through the years. So I think that would definitely, like to work at scale and to be able to, um, you know, create change at scale is what I would want to see. Um, For the Youth Negotiators Academy, I think we have in a very short span of time been able to prove that we are doing something which makes sense. We're filling a gap that did exist Mm-hmm. And we're creating something of value. But I think what we're still um, working on is really how do we, after taking all of these people there, after all the training, um, how do we shift the needle inside the room, right? Um, so I think we're still working. There's a lot of work that is going on, uh, but I still think there's so much more that we can do. So I think really, I would my dream for the Youth Negotiators Academy would be to be a program or to be a space that actually... Um, empowers uh, you know trains and also really builds and creates meaningful change in the right direction Um, and we're doing bits and piece like we're doing all three but like in bits and pieces like again I think to be able to do this at a much more different scale and to feel very confident that you know this is what we're delivering this is how we can create change so I think those would be for the two initiatives that I work on but in general I think For the climate movement, or basically for climate change in general, I mean, I really hope that we're able to take action at a scale much more faster than what we're doing today, right from individuals to, you know, policymakers to corporates to governments to everything in between. Like, I really hope we can understand the urgency of the situation, understand, you know, where we're headed and do whatever we can and do everything that we can in our power. Um, to move things at a pace and scale much faster than we are today, so I I think those that's the big vision that I would have.
0: Wow, that is a huge vision, and I hope your vision becomes a reality for all the people in the world, and everybody can see this. You know, uh, this vision of all the environmentalists, all the climate activists who are working there in the forefront, in the ground, and even in the policy making, even the decision table, everywhere, so that these amazing people who are working towards a better world of different other people who are not a part of it, but representing their voices to make sure that these changes can be helpful for the future coming peoples. So that's really wonderful to hear, Hita. And This is the end of the questions. Thank you so much for an amazing session. Thank you, Hita, for sharing your incredible insight and passion for climate action and climate change with us today. And it's been truly an enlightening conversation.
1: Thank you, Supri. It's been an absolute delight to be chatting with you. I've loved your questions and I've enjoyed every moment of it.
0: Thank you so much, Hita. Thank you, everyone. And to our listeners, we hope you found this episode an inspiring As inspiring as we did. And thank you so much for this. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe, leave a reply, leave a review, and share it to your friends, colleagues, family members. And your support can be helping us to bring in more amazing guests and valuable content to you, just like how we had an interaction with Heeta. And as we conclude today, I think... I can remember one quote that was, you know, uh, very inspiring to me. That was very related to climate change. And let me leave it like that. That the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else is going to you know, save it or work for it. So I guess, as you told Hita, everybody has this action that they can play, the role that they can play. So I guess that can be a huge summary and a huge, you know. Uh, quote for this day and thank you listeners until next time stay passionate and keep making this world a better world